Welcome to the Treeleaf Zendo podcast. Treeleaf is a Soto Zen Sangha available anytime, anywhere at treeleaf.org. Come sit with us. As you know, if you've been to one of our Rohad sessions before, Jundo gives us a text to work with and all of the people giving talks, all of the priests and priests in training giving talks, all talk on the same text. And we all get kind of sequential parts of the text to talk to you about. And the, the text we have this year is called Jijuyu Sud. Sorry, Jijuyu Zen Zanmai, Jijuyu Zanmai by Menzan Zuiho. And um, Jijuyu Zanmai roughly translates as self fulfilling samadhi. And hopefully by the end of the talk, I will give you some idea of who Menzan was and his significance in Soto Zen, what Jijuyu Zanmai is. And because this is a talk on Soto Zen, you can probably guess that I'm going to talk about Zazen a little as well. There's always a chance. Just before this retreat, Shoka wrote to me and said, what, what are you going to be talking about in your talk? And I said, Zazen. And she was like, yeah, I, it's kind of, it's what we talk about. So. Since I'm the first one to give a talk on this text, I just want to give you a little background on Menzan. And Menzan, somebody in Soto Zen, we don't talk about that often, but probably should. He's not as well known as Dogen or Keizan, or even going back to the, the Kaodong line of, of Dongshang and other, other Chinese teachers. I was listening to a talk the other night by um, Kathy Fisher from Everyday Zen, and she said, whereas we often think that we're practicing a form of medieval Zen, that's not totally true, because both Soto Zen and Rinzai Zen were massively reformed in the Tokugawa era. That's also known as the Edo period, and it was between 1603 and 1867. So it's comparatively recent compared to Dogen, who was around in the 13th century. And in the Rinzai tradition, the main reformer was Hakuin, and probably most people have heard of Hakuin, even though he's not in our tradition. And he came up with the koan curriculum that is still used in, in Rinzai schools. And he transformed the tradition and made it what it is today, go from what had been brought from Linji or Rinzai's time. He kind of codified it as it is now. And Menzan did the same for Soto Zen. And Menzan, um, he was born in 1683 and died in 1769. So most of his work was done in the 18th century. 
And although it sounds strange to us now, at that time, people didn't really study Dogen. Dogen was kind of pretty much lost in the Soto tradition. There may have been, you know, people in certain monasteries who studied him, but it wasn't the kind of thing, whereas we all know about Dogen, and probably we've all read some Dogen at least, that was not true then. So Manzan went back to Dogen, he brought the teachings back into use in the Soto tradition. And he also used Dogen's monastic code to rewrite the Soto Zen monastic code. So actually, the Soto Zen we practice today and the Soto Zen they practice today in Japan is very much a result of Menzan's work. And like Dogen, he was a prolific writer. He wrote a lot. And the Jiju Zanmai is just one of the texts we have left to us by Menzan. So, beginning at the beginning of this and reading from Menzan's words, the teachings of the Tathagata. I imagine most people have come across the word Tathagata. It means thus gone one, and it's an epithet for the historical Buddha. The teachings of the Tathagata, found in the various sutras, have been classified as sudden and gradual, provisional and direct. These teachings contain various types of preaching since they were given according to the qualities of the people the Buddha taught. The true enlightenment of the Tathagata is not manifested directly in these sutras, since they are provisional teachings. Although the Buddha expressed his true mind in some Mahayana sutras, in many cases the true teachings are no longer true, because the commentators of those sutras and commentaries interpreted them with their ordinary discriminating minds and intellectual understanding. That is why it is said in the Flower Ornament Sutra that interpretation through words stands against the Buddhas in the past, present and future. Also in the Lankavatara Sutra, it is said that the Buddha did not speak, and speak even one word during the 49 years he taught. From this, it should be clear that the true enlightenment of the Tathagata can never be grasped by words or by discrimination, nor by the illusory mind of ordinary human beings. Now, if you've read Zen for a bit, if you've read Alan Watts, and you've read various Zen texts, this probably sounds familiar. It's kind of, Zen cannot be understood with words and letters. If you speak of Zen, you kind of miss it. To talk about practice through words is to kind of grasp at something that's ineffable. And this goes back to something that's attributed to Bodhidharma, although it actually probably came from China around the 12th century. And you've probably heard this or parts of it, that Zen was described as a special transmission outside the scriptures not founded upon words and letters, by pointing directly to one's mind, it lets one, it lets one see into one's true nature, and thus attain Buddhahood. When I first read or heard that, as I imagine like a lot of you, I was thinking, okay, this is fine. Outside of words and letters, why have I got a library of Zen books? 
why has Dogen written 95 fascicles on Chopogenzo? And it, it doesn't mean, though some people interpret it, it doesn't mean don't read stuff, don't read Zen books. Zen books are great. Well, some of them are. Um, Dogen, as I say, Dogen wrote a lot. Menzan wrote a lot. Jundo has apparently written a book I think he'd quite like us to read. And the fact is, these books are really helpful. I find them really helpful in pointing me in the right direction of practice. But what, as I imagine you know, this is saying is, it's not enough to read. It's like, if you've got tea now or coffee, it's, it's like the difference between reading a book on what coffee or tea tastes like and actually tasting it for yourself. So in the books on Zen, even the Buddha's own words, as much as we have them in the Pali Canon, Dogen's writings, Kazan's writing, modern teachers' writings, it writes of Shinri Suzuki, Jundo, Norman Fisher, whoever. They're great, and I commend you to read as much Zen as you, as you find helpful. But at the end of the day, when we've read all that, we have to sit on the cushion and experience how it is to practice. Without that practice, we can't, we can't taste the tea. As I say, the reading's great, but the cushion and through our off the cushion life, that's where we become intimate with life. That's where we actually experience what it is to live, what it is to actually rest in the experience of life. So this is why we sit, this is why we practice. And this is why, although we study Dogen and we study other texts and we listen to Dharma talks like this one, our central practice is to, to get ourselves to the cushion. So, the next part of the text. When the Buddha was on Mount Ryoju, which is Vulture Peak, with his one million students, he picked up a flower and blinked, and the venerable Mahakasyapa smiled. At that time, the Tathagata said to the assembly, I transmit the Shobo Genzo, Nehan Myoshin, the storehouse of the true Dharma I, to Mahakasyapa. This Nehan Myoshin is the Tathagata's true enlightenment, which precedes language, discrimination, and illusory mind. This is also called the Jijuyu Zanmai, which has been transmitted for 51 generations from the Buddha to Bodhidharma in India, down through the sixth patriarch, Huenung in China, and to Ehe Dogen in Japan. The simultaneous practice enlightenment of this Samadhi is nothing other than Keka Fusa, or the full lotus sitting, which we practice today. Again, I imagine that those of you who've read much about Zen knows this story, or you've heard somebody talk about it. It's a kind of foundation myth of Zen. The Buddha holding up the flower, and Mahakasyapa smiling. And it doesn't say what everyone else is doing, but what I imagine everyone else was doing 
was immediately going into kind of discursive, con discriminating thought, thinking, why is the Buddha holding up a flower? Is this symbolic of something? Am I supposed to grasp this meaning? Does it symbolize enlightenment, spring, spiritual growth? What kind of flower is it? They're just kind of lost in these thoughts. Whereas Mahakasyapa, I think, just, he just saw the flower. He received the experience of the flower and how beautiful it was. And then he smiled. So whereas everyone else was just kind of trapped in a mental bubble of their experience, Mahakasyapa was just instead having a direct experience. And I think we can relate this to our, to Zazen, in that when we sit on the cushion, that's what we're doing. We're just becoming intimate with our experience. We're trying to drop away some of that judging, some of that conceptualizing, some of that thinking, trying to understand, trying to work things out and just saying, okay, just for the next 30 minutes, I'm just going to sit with my experience and see what it is, what this is. Um, Mark Asyapo was an interesting figure as well. He wasn't the foremost disciple of Buddha, but by the time of the Buddha's death, um, his, his two foremost disciples, Shariputra and Maudgaliana, had already passed. So Mahakasyapa was the one who took the role in the Buddha's cremation. And he also uh, presided over what's known as the First Council. We don't know if this is historically accurate, but it's said that after the Buddha's death, all of the Sangha, all of the monks and nuns and lay people got together. Well, mainly probably the, the monastics got together and recollected what the Buddha had taught. And also they, they worked out his monastic discipline as well, the Vinaya. And it said that that first meeting was a way of trying to codify some of the Buddha's teachings at that time. So Mahakasyapa was seen as the, the first descendant of the Buddha. And then also this idea of transmitting the true Dharma eye, the true way of being able to see and relate to our experience started there that it wasn't because of something the Buddha said that Mahakasyapa was awakened. It was just through holding up this flower. So what is Jiju Zammai um, or self-fulfilling Samadhi? Well, I think it's just Zazen. It's just that resting in the experience of what is receiving those sense impressions and trying not to add our conceptions on top of them. What we often do is life is we make stories about what's happening to us. We make a narrative about what's going on. We bring our preferences of I like that, I don't like that, this is good, this is bad. And in Jiju's and my, we let that drop. What we're doing 
He's just being intimate with all of life as it is at this very moment. When we could go further and use kind of mystical words like we're dwelling in unborn mirror-like awareness and some people might like that, other people it sounds too zenny. Um, but this is what we're passing from generation of Zen students to generation of Zen students. This practice of just being with what is. And we all sit and you'll know it's harder than, harder than it sounds. Because our human brains are built to try and work things out. They're built to understand, they're built to discriminate. And there's nothing wrong with that. That comes in very handy. If you hear a rustle, if you're like in a forest and you hear a rustle, it's useful to be able to discriminate if that's another rambler or if it's a bear. Our minds are handy. They come in useful for a lot of things. And it's not like we have to d dwell in self-fulfilling samadhi the whole time. But the fact is, this practice allows us to go beyond that small self of discriminating and be fully intimate with experience. And when we're fully intimate, the self kind of drops away and we can just see things for how they are. So the next part, tentatively, this Samadhi is called Zazen. The reason it is referred to as Zazen is as follows. Bodhidharma came from India to China and sat facing the wall at Shorin Temple. At that time, people who did not understand that he was what he was practicing was Jijuyu Zanmai, because the posture of his practice was similar to that of the Dhyana of the Four Stages and Samadhi of the Eight Stages described by the Buddhist scholars of the time. That is why his practice was commonly called Zazen, which translates as seated Dhyana or seated Samadhi. Consequently, his successors were for, called followers of the Zen or Dhyana school. However, originally Shobo Genzo Nihan Miaoshin which has been directly transmitted through the Buddhas and ancestors, was not necessarily called seated dhyana. So, what Menzan's doing here is making a difference between the practices of other Buddhist schools, which you may have done some of them, which involve concentration meditation or insight meditation and the meditation is a means to an end. You sit focusing on your breaths, so you can develop concentration or you sit focusing on the flow of thoughts and sensations to understand impermanence and how awareness works. And this is where Zazen is different and why Juju Zanmai is called self-fulfilling Samadhi. It's not called self-fulfilling samadhi because it fulfills the self, but it's self-fulfilling in that the practice is the goal. We don't practice Zazen to achieve something. 
when we sit and be and are intimate with everything we're experiencing, that's not just the practice, that's the goal. So that self-fulfilling samadhi, that kind of unborn awareness that's always there whenever we sit and we just let ourselves rest in that experience, we let go of some of that discriminating mind and ego the wants excitement, doesn't want to be bored, it doesn't want to be sitting, it wants to be doing something else. And when we drop that, we find there's just a place where we can just experience what is. And as I say, that's both the practice and the goal. And Jiju Zanmai is actually a name um, which is also given to part of Dogen's Bendowa fascicle in Shobo Genzo. And it's normally the first, chronologically, it's the first fascicle, and often numerically, it's the first fascicle of Shobo Genzo. And whereas Fukan Zanzengi, the universally recommended instructions for Zazen, was some short instructions on Zazen that Dogen wrote on returning from China. It's quite short, it's a couple of pages, really good instructions for Zazen, but very simple. Benzoa's more like a companion piece where he describes a greater depth of why we practice Shikantaza. And if you're going to read any Dogen, I'd recommend those two pieces as a starting point, Fukan Zazengi and Bendawa. And in Fukan Zazengi, Dogen says, sitting in Zazen is not learning Zen concentration. It is simply the peaceful and joyful gate of the Dharma. It is the practice and experience which perfectly realizes the state of Bodhi. The right Dharma is naturally manifesting itself before us. And that's going back to what I was saying before about what Benzan was saying. It's just the Zazen is the essence of our practice. We're not practicing concentration to get better at concentration. We're not practicing insight meditation. We're just manifesting Buddhahood right here, right now on the cushion with everything that is. And that probably sounds too, too good to be true. I'm sure we've all sat in Zazen with aching backs, with something going on outside, somebody's car alarm going off or some people shouting at each other and going, yeah, right, so this is like Buddha manifest on the cushion. And yes, it is. The only difference is having preferences or not. When we sit, we're just there to experience what is. And what is isn't necessarily what we want to experience. In Qin Xing Ming, Faith in Mind, it said, the great way is easy. Just give up your preferences. That's hard. And in actuality, we don't really need to do it because we have to have preferences in life. And that's fine. It's fine to have preferences, but it's also good to be aware of when we're having preferences. When we're on the cushion, though, and we can take this into life, whatever's happening is okay. We don't need to fix it. If there's car alarms going off, we don't need to fix it. 
I mean, possibly if it's our car and somebody's trying to break into it, maybe we do need to look at that. But mostly, if it's just experience, we don't need to fix it. The second noble truth the Buddha talked about basically says, if we grasp onto an idea of how we want things to be, we're going to suffer. And on the cushion, we can let go of how we want things to be and actually let things come to us on their own terms. We're not telling life how it needs to be. We're seeing how life is. Most of you probably know I have a chronic illness. And as chronic illnesses do, sometimes it's a bit better, sometimes it's a bit worse. If I have a particularly bad patch, for the first few hours of that, maybe the first day, I rail against the world saying, it shouldn't be like this. This isn't how it's supposed to be. But why isn't it? As I say, chronic illnesses get better and worse. So after a short time, I just relax into it. Just rest and then I can do what I need to do. Go to bed, maybe take some pain medication, whatever. But I'm not telling life how it needs to be. Does it still suck? Probably still sucks, but it sucks less than if I'm trying to dictate to life how it is. And that's what we're doing in Jiju Zanmai, in Shikantaza, in Zazen. We're just letting life be as it is. We're setting aside our preferences and our likes and our dislikes. In Benduar, Dogen says, if a human being, even for a single moment, manifests the Buddha's posture in the three forms of conduct, while that person sits up straight in samadhi, the entire world of Dharma assumes the Buddha's posture and the whole of space becomes a state of realization. Again, that kind of sounds too good to be true. It's like I'm sitting on my cushion and everything is realized. But if we just let things be as they are, including how we are, everything is just manifesting its own Buddha nature. Everything is in its right Dharma position. And what Dogen said is true, the whole of space becomes a state of realization. It probably rarely feels like that to us. And the reason for that is we've still got ideas about how things should be. If we sit on the cushion and we have a sit where everything seems to flow and be really peaceful and our awareness is spacious and space-like, that feels like a good sit. Whereas if we have a sit where we're just begging the bell to come and thinking, I'm sure somebody's forgotten to ring the bell. We've like been here an hour. Then we, we think that's a bad sit, but you don't need to fix either of those things. They're both perfectly fine. So you'll probably be glad to know we're coming to the last part of Menzan's words. The Buddha's awareness called Nehan Myoshim is perfect and always quietly illuminating itself. This is the be-all of the Buddhas and the end-all of the ancestors. Understand this clearly and believe that this Jijuyu Zammai 
is Shinjin Datsuraku, Datsuraku Shinjin, those translators, dropping off body and mind, body and mind dropped off. All of these terms are taken from the various teachings of the Buddhas and patriarchs, are names for the Zazen we practice. You may have heard the dropping off body and mind before. When Dogen travelled to China, he wrote um, the Hokioki about it. And it talks about when he realised his true nature with his teacher Rujing. He went to his teacher's room and lit incense. And when Rujin came into the room, Dogen said, Shinjin Datsuraku, or dropped away body and mind, meaning he had realised that awareness that was free of notions of self. And Rujing replied, Datsuraku Shinjin, body and mind dropped away, confirming it. In one of the most well-known parts of Genjo Koan, another fascicle of Shobo Genzo, Dogen says, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by a myriad things. When actualized by myriad things, your body and mind, as well as the bodies and minds of others, drop away. No trace of realization remains, and this no trace continues endlessly. So what's he talking about? Well, when we do sit in Zazen and we look at what we think is the self, we notice that it's, there's nothing fixed there. So it's not to study the self is to forget the self. It's more to study the self. We kind of recognize the lack of concrete self. Although also by, by being intimate with all things, the kind of notion of self drops away because our notion of self is just another aspect of experience. It's nothing special. It's something we create. It's something useful, something provisional and relative, but it's still something we create. Jundo, who should probably get a mention by now, often talks about an instruction in Shikintaza that's missing from most people's uh, teachings on it is trust. We often use our discriminating mind to work things out to keep us safe. And what we're doing in Shikintaza is developing trust in our innate ability to be intimate with life and just let things be as they are. We don't have to always be meddling with the world. We don't always have to be fixing things. We don't always have to be getting life to conform to our idea of it. We can trust that most things are okay without our meddling. And in fact, as most of us probably know, sometimes life is a lot better, or not a lot better, but life gets on perfectly well without our meddling, and our meddling can kind of mess things up a bit. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do things when we feel we should step in, but often, more often than we probably think, we can just trust things to take care of themselves. And what I find when I'm on the cushion, the more I let go, the more I trust. And again, this is going to sound kind of zenny. 
it sort of feels like life is illuminating me and that self-fulfilling samadhi is working through me. It's not something I have to do. It's something that happens in and of itself. And in Genjo Koan, Dogen says, driving ourselves to practice and experience millions of things and phenomena is delusion. But when millions of things and phenomena actively practice and experience ourselves, that's realization. That was the Nishijima cross-translation. Tanahashi puts it maybe a bit clearer. To carry the self forward and illuminate myriad things is delusion. That myriad things come forth and illuminate the self is awakening. So basically, if we with our small self try to dictate to life and discriminate what's good and what's bad, that's delusion. But just allowing life to be as it is, to trust, that's awakening. Just letting things flow through us, letting the right action arise by itself. This is a true intimacy with life. And for me, that's what Zen's about. It's about being intimate with our experience, not missing out on life by being trapped in the stories of what's going on. And I think about being in a romantic relationship that often we get lost in ideas of how our partner should be or ideas of how they are based on what they've done in the past. And that's not true intimacy. True intimacy should be relating to a person or things just as they are fresh in each moment. And this, of course, is what Zazen is. It's not experiencing things as they were, as they might be, or as we think they are. It's about fresh in every moment, experiencing it new. Letting go what's past, letting go what's to come even letting go of our ideas of now and just resting in what is. In Fukan Zazengi, Dogen concludes by saying, if you practice the state like this for a long time, you will surely become the state like this itself. The treasure house will open naturally and you will be free to receive and to use its contents as you like. So what is this treasure house? It may not surprise you to learn it's Jijuyu Zamadi. It's the knowledge we're not limited by the ideas of our small selves and our likes and dislikes, but instead we can go beyond that and experience life based on intimacy and trust and the knowledge that who we really are is far bigger than that. It's being part of the wholeness of everything that is. We can trust the Buddha sees through our eyes and Canon uses our hands. And being intimate with life, we can, it doesn't have to happen all at once, but each time we're on the cushion and each day we can maybe let go of ourself and our discriminating mind a little more and let our Buddha nature just shine through a little more. And doing that starts on the cushion. So thank you very much for listening. I know I, I bang on a bit and uh, 
I like words and yet yeah, that's a fault. If anyone's got any questions, feel free to ask, but don't make them too hard. <laughs> So I want to uh, start by apologizing. I ran to, or I got to my phone after uh, calling for Kenan, and I received a, a very hurried message from Beyon saying, "You have no bells." So if you didn't hear the bells, then all, all indications are you aren't. I apologize. That should be fixed now. Uh, additionally, I misread that uh, message from Beyond. Uh, so it took any anxiety that I had away from this talk because uh, I was confused for just a moment. Um, I didn't, the full disclosure, I didn't write too, too many notes. And uh, Jundo said to do things off the cuff and from the heart. So if I bounce around a little bit, that's why. Um, but we are continuing with uh, Menzan's Jujuyo, Jujuyo Zanmai. And it starts with, or this section starts with, Some hurry on their way to gain enlightenment by wrestling with koans. Some struggle within themselves, searching for the ultimate subject that sees and hears. Some try to rid themselves of their delusory thoughts in order to reach a pleasant place of no mind, no thought. So we're looking here and bouncing off of what uh, Koku's talk was about in that instead of how we practice with shikantaza and zazen, the act itself being all-encompassing and whole, some hurry on their way to gain the enlightenment by wrestling with koans, introspection, uh, to reach a pleasant place of no mind and no thought. So literally a state without mind or thought. Um, which brings me to a quick segue. I read something the other week saying that some people have no internal dialogue. So if they're not saying anything or if they're just thinking, they don't have a little voice in their head uh, monologuing their every action or thought. Uh, I myself have a condition where I can't visualize anything. Uh, so if I say to you all, uh, don't picture a pink elephant. Well, I apologize. I can't, but I'm sure some of you can. Uh, but there talking about reaching a state without mind or thought. So in essence, taking away what is natural and that our thoughts, the coming and going, the arising, they're trying to reach a state where there's no mind, no thought. And it continues. Many other methods of practicing Zazen were advocated by various teachers in the Song, Wen, and Ming dynasties in China. But it appears that fewer than one in a hundred knew the true samadhi transmitted by the Buddhas and patriarchs. 
It appears that fewer than one in a hundred knew the true samadhi transmitted by the Buddhas and patriarchs. So again, as Koku mentioned, uh, there were many different ways in his talk, but there were many different uh, ways of sitting. Um, but it's very rare, as it's written here, uh, that anyone practiced the true samadhi, the way of sitting, uh, zazen, that is, again, the all-encompassing, uh, the, as they would say, the enlightenment in practice. And it continues from here. Koan practice started in Song Dynasty, China. There was no such practice during the time of Bodhidharma, or Eno, the sixth patriarch. It was established by and based on the biased ideas of the masters of the Song Dynasty, searching for the subject that sees and hears is also useless. Now, I'm not a historian, so I'm taking it as fact here, but it says when it was established by and based on the biased ideas of the masters of the Song Dynasty, I believe it's historically accurate to put that there as far as the beginnings of the koan practice. Again, searching for the subject that sees and hears is also useless. So I take that to mean to stop looking and searching for what's been here all along. When we sit, that's one of that's what we do. We drop our grasping of thoughts of our conditions. We stop the hunt and the search and just sit with what is. Um, say the, the searcher and the searched are the same. Like we are one. It's, it's non-separate between the searched and the searchee. The harder you look for the subject, the more you will tire of wastefully struggling, since what is seeking and what is being sought cannot be separated. Understand that your eyes cannot see themselves. Arousing the mind to eliminate illusory thoughts is like pouring oil on a fire to extinguish it. The fire will blaze with increased strength. So again, we don't want to use our minds and our thinking to try and get rid of our minds and our thinking. Doesn't make uh, much sense, and yet that's what I do, and that's what I'm sure most of us do time to time, is we have a thought or a craving, and I'll talk about that in a bit, uh, perhaps a condition or a feeling that we dislike, and we want to get rid of it. You know, we try to use our mind, don't, don't think about that, don't pay that any mind, and yet, we're not doing what we're advised to do, and that is be with what is. Allowing the illusory thoughts and what we're searching for, 
and what we believe we're separated from to naturally arise and come as is. Again, we don't grasp or hold on to our thinking. We let what arises arise and what fades, fades. If we're not worried about thinking, it's just another natural thing that occurs. And it continues, those teachers in medieval times, Song Dynasty China, thought that we are all deluded and that if we practice Zazen, we could gain enlightenment as a result of the power accumulated by Zazen practice. We are all deluded and that if we practice Zazen, we could gain enlightenment as a result of the power accumulated by Zazen practice. They also thought that after gaining enlightenment, there would be no further need to practice Zazen. They compared it to a boat which is no longer necessary once the other shore is reached. Now, it's going to sound like a broken record, as uh, a lot of this will sound familiar uh, to you, but from the way this is written, they are referring to using Zazen to get somewhere, to gain that enlightenment, to gain that wholeness that they're searching for. But afterwards, once they're enlightened, there's no further need to practice Zazen. Again, comparing it to a boat, which is no longer necessary once the other shore is reached. And if that sounds familiar, that is also one of the basic uh, teachings that we hear a lot of, and that one shore being our, our ego, our delusions, and everything that comes with that, the raft being practiced, and the other shore being the end of it. Again, once that shore is reached, there is no longer any need for the raft of Sazen. It continues on. People in the present day often practice Zazen in this manner. They aspire to rid themselves of delusions and to gain enlightenment, to eliminate illusory thoughts and to obtain the truth. This is nothing but creating the karma of acceptance and rejection. Such an attitude is just another form of dualism in that one escapes from one thing and chases after another. In the last several hundred years, a great many have adhered to this attitude, both in China and Japan. All mistake a broken piece of tile for gold. So, again, this is uh, where I ran out of notes. And full transparency, uh, 
before Samu, I was outside, I was walking outside to try and figure out how I could wrap all of this together into something to present to modern day times. And as I was outside, passing my neighbors, who, mind you, don't know I live here, they never see me, and yet in Kessa in full robe, uh, I'm pretty sure they were a bit confused. Uh, but as I was walking and wrestling with this and how to take it, um, and how I can bring home this idea of being able to trust just sitting and not grasping the things we like and dislike and uh, the conditions we face or don't face, uh, it began to rain. Quite hard, in fact. Again, full Kessa, and I'm uh, pretty far from my apartment at the time, so as the universe does, it said, hey, here's your sign. But I want to go back from here just a bit because this really hit home to me personally and where it says, people in the present day often practice zazen in this manner. They aspire to rid themselves of delusions and to gain in life, to eliminate illusory thoughts and to obtain the truth. I came to Zen practice a decade ago this year. And when I first found Zen, it was after hearing a talk by Thich Nhat Hanh. And then I read into Thich Nhat Hanh and uh, his story. I thought, you know, there might be something to this. Now, what I need to preface this with is that 10 years ago, I was coming out of a, a nervous breakdown, uh, PTSD related, and very much uh, someone who struggled with alcoholism. Uh, it's not a secret to most of you, but that's where my headspace was at the time. That's how I came to Zen, and that's the state I was in. So I came to Zen exactly how they were talking about uh, other people practicing here at the end to rid myself of delusion and to gain what I thought was enlightenment or a little bit of peace that I hadn't uh, quite found. The first few years of practicing Zazen uh, I quickly found it wasn't taking anything away. I still had uh, my PTSD. I still had my cravings, uh, my delusions, my thoughts, uh, my intrusive thoughts at that. Uh, and I thought, what's going on? You know, Zazen, from what everybody's saying, you know, these people look peaceful. They're, they're supposed to be in a better place here, but I, I must be doing something wrong. So I was very much still searching, still trying to rid myself 
of these things that were causing so much pain in my life. Now, thankfully, I didn't stop practicing Zazen. I still had my issues, but as the years went by, um, I found that things just, how do I say, got a little quieter. And it was a slow lesson, but Zazen allowed me to learn what it meant to just be with everything. The things that drove me to drink, the things that gave me PTSD episodes, the struggles in my life that made me very unhappy. Zazen gave me an action where I could just sit and things could come up and I could just be. Now, it's not always pleasant, as most of us know, the comings and goings, the thoughts, the aches and pains, the emotions that we can experience. But yet, in Sazen, we just learn how to be with that. I learned how to let my internal see, rage as much as it wanted to, before settling on its own. And it was one time a couple of years into this where I finally got a glimpse of that trust that Koku mentioned, which I'm so grateful that he did, because I found that there was a very small sliver in that particular sit that day of harmony in the noise where I didn't believe there was any. But it was that trust that there was something to this. I might not have gotten me where I wanted it to go immediately or even a few years in or maybe uh, not even the rest of my life. But there was something to this just sitting, this allowing to be with what was that changed things for me. And after a few years of this, I began opening my hands to the experiences, the cravings, the thoughts, the emotions that I was experiencing. And instead of clenching them, instead of pushing things away, it was allowing them to just be and leave on their own. And it took time and practice and a willingness to experience this, this full range of life, of reality, of conditions, uh, and just trusting that this was what these Zen folk were talking about. This just sitting, this allowing to be, uh, as our dear Junda would say, the big H happiness, the big C contentment. And yet, if we go back to the text, where it says, again, they aspire to rid themselves of delusions and gain enlightenment, to eliminate illusory thoughts and to obtain the truth, it's a bit misguided. 
And that's the uh, classic paradox we run into in that, in my case, Zazen's not going to solve my problems. Zazen's not going to make me a non-alcoholic, even five years sober. Zazen is not going to keep the rain from falling when I'm outside. Zazen's not going to stop the winter from coming or our friends down under the summer. But allowing it or learning to allow things to just be as they are, well, that is the enlightenment that is being searched for, that all-encompassing, that experience of what is that is being searched for in these texts. Again, I want to go back a bit. Like, there's nothing lacking in Zazen. There's nothing to change. There's no one to fix. But when we get up off the cushion, we realize we're still in need of changing. Some things do need fixing. But after time and practice, things get easier. They get quieter. There's space to work with what is, even off the cushion. Now, as much as I'm not a public speaker, and I don't want to be cliche and end things with quotes, but there's two that I'd like to wrap things up with. And the first one is by uh, Charlotte Joko Beck. And it says, you can't try to let go. That's silly. Who is letting go? You can't try to fix yourself. You can't try to be an accepting person. What you can do is experience not accepting something. How many minutes can I just sit and be that? And to me, that's Zazen in a nutshell. How many minutes can we just sit with what is and experience life and everything that comes with that? And the second is again from our dear Jundo, going back to the raft analogy before. He said this better than I could, and I would be remiss if I didn't share. He writes, for Dogen, we never really put down the raft, and we never really picked it up either. But we are always on the raft each moment, and always arriving at our destination moment by moment too. In fact, the other shore of the river is always present on this shore, and every drop of the middle of the river too. The voyage never ends, never began, is present in each stroke of our oar. We are the river, and the raft is just us, always going, always arriving, every moment. Now, I'm not sure how much sense that made, again, going off the cuff, but that is all I have. That's all I think I have. So I'll open it to questions, comments. Uh, if it's a question that I don't know the answer to, I'll say it. If it's a question that I have experience with, I may be given an answer to it.
Can everyone hear me okay? All right. So we're talking tonight and throughout Rohats about uh, Minzan Zuiho Osho's um, text, Jiju Yuzanme. Uh, and this talk tonight is uh, Samadhi and the Illusory Mind. Um, so this, in case you, uh, most of you should probably know who Minzan is already, but just in case you don't, um, he was around during the late 1600s, the first half of the 1700s. And uh, for us in Soto Zen, for uh, Soto Zen philosophy, he was essentially the Maimonides or the Thomas Aquinas of his time. Um, he wrote a great deal uh, for Zen philosophers, for Soto Zen philosophers at the time, over 50 books, over 100 texts uh, that Menzon uh, put together and that we still have to draw on for our learning. Uh, so Menzon's texts are notable because he refocused attention at the time on the teachings of Dogen Zenji, uh, thus strengthening the philosophy of Soto Zen. And um, we at Tree Leaf are who we are. In fact, all Zen practitioners today are largely, Soto Zen practitioners are largely who we are because of the work that Master Menzon uh, did during his lifetime. Uh, one important thing in particular for us at Tree Leaf is uh, Menzon promoted teaching of Zen practice and knowledge to lay folk, which is something that we also um, promote and Jundo promotes uh, through Tree Leaf. Master Menzon is dear to us, Soto Zen people. Um, he's one of the honored ones of whom we speak, even though we don't mention him by name always, when we're dedicating our recitation of the heart of the greater the heart of the perfection of great wisdom sutra and the identity of relative and absolute. He's an ancestor of our lineage, uh, which comes from Shakyamuni Buddha to Dogen Zenji, uh, to Niwa Rempo Zenji, uh, to Master Gudo, and of course to Jundo Roshi, Roshi and through him to all of us. So in this text, uh, the self-receiving employing Samadhi or Jijuyu Zenmei, uh, Minzan is writing to Zen followers in 18th century Japan, and he's writing about samadhi, and not just about samadhi, but how to come around to it. And just as a reminder, samadhi is a unity of mind or maybe a singularity of purpose, um, maybe uh, like-mindedness, an intense consciousness that we achieve through meditative practice. And not just us, but many Buddhists, this is what they're, they're seeking. When someone says they're looking for enlightenment, the path to enlightenment runs right through samadhi. So in our Soto Zen way, Shikantaza is the fulfillment of samadhi. And there's more than that, more on that topic to come. Um, I'm going to read you the brief text that this talk is based on. Uh, Minzan Zuiho wrote, Now I will explain in detail the way to clarify and rely on this samadhi. This is done simply by not clouding the light of your true self. When the light of the true self is clear, you follow 
neither Conchin or Dulmas, nor Sanran or distraction. The third patriarch said, when the cloudless light illuminates itself, there is no need to make mental struggle. There is no need, there is no waste of energy. This is the vital point of the practice and enlightenment of the samadhi. The cloudless light illuminates itself means the light of the self shines brightly. Not to make mental struggle means not to add the illusory mind's discrimination to the reality. When you make mental struggle, the light becomes illusory mind and the brightness becomes darkness. If you do not make mental struggle, the darkness itself becomes the self-illumination of the light. Then, for example, it is like the light of the sun or the moon illuminating everything. Mountains and rivers, human beings and dogs, etc. equally, without differentiation or evaluation. Also, a mirror reflects everything without bothering to discriminate. Mumyo or the fundamental delusion is called illusory mind. It is our discriminating mind with obstinate, which obstinately clings to body, mind, the world, and all things as being the way we have perceived and recognized them until now. For example, although something good is not always good, we hold stubbornly to what we think is good. Something evil is not always evil, yet we become attached to our own judgment and make it a preconception. Even if you think something is good, others may think it is evil. Fundamentally, such judgments merely accord with illusory mind, which manifests itself in the form of one's own knowledge, views, and experiences. This is true not only of our judgments about good and evil, but also our views about being and not being, hatred and love etc. All of these differentiations regarding all existence arise from illusory mind. Originally, all beings are outside of illusory mind and are beyond evaluation or differentiation. You must realize this clearly and without any doubt. And that's the end of the section of uh, Menzan's text. Master Menzan is saying to Zen followers and specifically to lay folk, not only to monks, but to lay folk, to let go of a lot in order to find samadhi. Like a lot of Zen teachers, what he is sounding, saying, can seem fairly simple. And in fact, he even says it is simple in the text. All you have to do is don't cloud your true self, then you will find samadhi. Kanshi Sozan, or Zhangji uh, Singan, was the third patriarch after Bodhidharma, Bodhidharma um, and is mentioned in uh, Master Menzan's text. Um, and if you're counting, he was the 30th patriarch after uh, Shakyamuni Buddha. And he, he said, if you do this, then there's no mental struggle or waste of energy. It just happens if you let it. But there's the rub, isn't it? The if you let it part. Minzan explains that all you that this is all you have to do to get rid of Mumyo. I'm sorry, all you have to do is get rid of Mumyo. So bye Mumyo. I'll see you tomorrow. Mumyo is the fundamental delusion. It's our illusory mind. Mumyo is the great discriminator. It drives us to dichotomize. It makes us want to categorize and label everything.
It makes us see things as good and bad, people we like, people we don't. We're us, but not you, and not all of us together. All the things and all the people are independent of each other. There's an old way of explaining Zen that we've all heard um, in which we proclaim all is one. But Monio is screaming at us, no, we aren't. If we can get rid of this delusion of the discriminatory mind to reveal our true selves, Menzan says, then we will find samadhi. We will find uh, our true selves uh, shining their light brightly on our Buddha nature. The way that we do that, according to our honored one, Master Menzan, is a very simple thing. Practice zazen. Practice zazen. There's a paradigm of samadhi um, historically as an object of attainment. And it's said that during the time of Shakyamuni Buddha and many centuries thereafter, that only a very small number of people, a handful of people, actually achieved the state of consciousness that we refer to as samadhi. It was so elusive. There's a later paradigm of samadhi and one that is um, still very strong today for many Buddhists and others who are seeking some sort of enlightenment. And that's that samadhi comes as a sudden flash of great insight or a great awakening. Through practice, you unveil your true self, you attain samadhi, and you reach a state of enlightenment. You might hear someone say that they were sitting or doing some other form of practice, and a flash of samadhi fell on them like a great flash of insight. Then it was gone, and now they're working to get it back. So the Soto Zen philosophy, our approach is a little different with our focus on Shikantaza. Our Soto Zen paradigm is another step in understanding the state of deepened consciousness or awakening. From our perspective, samadhi is out there, but it is not a goal. We do not expect to be struck by the lightning bolt of insight. Samadhi is not something we are reaching to attain because it is always, it is always fully within our grasp when we are practicing zazen. We can be present with goalless zazen and find ourselves fully plugged in to samadhi. It is available on the mat. It is available off the mat. It is available at every moment, which is why we try to bring practice to all that we do. So uh, we do this thing called anga, culminating in this Rohats retreat to remind ourselves of this. In Anga, we practice and we practice. We practice practice. We try to remain mindful of bringing practice into our lives. And this is what Master Menzan's book, Jijuyu um, Zanme, which is where our readings and lectures are coming from for this Rohat's retreat. This is what he was writing about, that Zazen practiced with body and with mind is exactly the samadhi that has been sought since it was first attained by the Buddha ages ago. When we sit zazen, we are awakening like the Buddha did, like the Buddhas we are. If we allow our ego to drive what we are doing, we all we will find is dukkha, greed, anger, and ignorance. 
If we instead find ourselves in the cloudless light in, of our true selves, and we abide by the three pure bodhisattva precepts, which are doing all good, avoiding all evil, and living with compassion for all beings, then we will find samadhi. So, as uh, Master Menzen says, simple, right? Not much to it. Whatever struggle I have in finding my way to samadhi comes because no one can crack open my head and pour in knowledge. And maybe more importantly, they can't pour in understanding. I have to find that part through my practice. I can learn from you, but I have to do the practice part myself. And my mind, uh, my mind can make up one heck of a story about how hard that is to just practice. No practice and the mental struggle that Kanchi Sosan wrote of intensifies. No practice and my light is hidden beneath the clouds of a stormy night. So we do Ango. Ango is the coming together of the Sangha in peace to practice and to rediscover the beauty of our true selves. Ango helps us to blow those clouds out of the way so that our true light shines through. Our Ango shows us clearly that our practice does not need to be some sort of elaborate concoction of ritual and form and chanting and knowledge. These things can certainly be a part of our practice and they really can help us a lot. They can help bring us to remember um, and they can help us be mindful and they can bring practice to every moment. But the complex is only useful if it helps us remember the simple and the simple, the simple thing, the simple for us as Zen practitioners is the simple act of just sitting. The simple is just being there. When we practice together as a sangha, we can step into that one-mindedness of samadhi. And because it is always present and always everywhere, we can do it together in a Zendo building. We can do it together hundreds or thousands of miles apart in our homes. We can do it together at different times. We are travelers across time and space in our Sangha. When we're able, when we're ready, it is right there, right now, in this moment. All you have to do is take a step, a step into uh, practice. So I truly believe that this is what Master Menzen was writing about. If you open yourself to the practice of Zazen, you uncloud your light. You don't need to be a Zen master. You don't need to be a Zen monk. You only have to practice right where you are right now. And the most beautiful part of all of this is that we don't have to wait for Ango. We can practice together right now, right here, whenever and wherever we are. I can open my web browser and I can sit along with the most recent Sazen Kai or I can pick a random one from years ago and practice with the Sangha. Uh, I can pick any of the multitude of recordings that are the timbers and the walls of our Zendo. 
or I can just sit with myself and it is still exactly the same as if I were sitting right here, right now with all of you. It's exactly the same. It is exactly Samadhi. And now we will have a few minutes of uh, Zazen and then some more Kinhin and then we will close for the evening. Okay. Uh, hi, everyone. Thank you for coming. My name is Onkai. I'm a priest in training here. I'm going to continue the discussion of Menzan Zuyo Osho's The Self-Receiving Employing Samadhi, also translated as The Self-Enjoying What is Received. The first part I'm going to talk about is as follows, quote, the one mind which manifests either as unin thought or munin no thought, no good, no evil, must be something which is beyond these conditions. It must be the light which illuminates everywhere and is never clouded. As soon as you become clearly aware of the light, you will be released from the limitation of delusory thoughts, and the Buddha's wisdom will be realized. This is called Nehan Myoshin, the marvelous mind in Nirvana. This is this is nothing other than Jiju Yu Zanmai. Practice enlightenment beyond Unin and Munin can be compared to the function of a mirror. A mirror reflects both beautiful and ugly things without distinguishing them. This is the natural function of a mirror. But the reflection, which may be beautiful or ugly, is not the mirror itself. The reflection is just a shadow of what is in front of the mirror. End of quote. Okay. This is beginning the discussion of relative and absolute. Um, unin, thought, is relative, and munin, no thought, no good, no evil, is the absolute. Um, I will be discussing the, the relative and absolute more later. Um, for now, let's just say that Practice enlightenment includes both the relative and the absolute. Nenge's reading about Buddha was about Buddha nature always being present, that clouds and storms sometimes don't cover the sun or moon of enlightenment. Uh, and emotions drive those storms. Um, emotions, desire, aversion, and dull ignorance. But we know that the sun and moon are always there. Jundo reminded me, and I think this, this part discusses the idea 
that clouds and storms themselves have the light of Buddha nature. There is light in the clouds. So the relative and is the absolute, and the absolute is the relative. Uh, when we see that there is Buddha nature in the clouds and storms, which is often hard to see because they're tumultuous and they can be ugly. We also see that we can help by seeing the light of the storms. We also see that we can help, help them calm down by living gently and, and making a better world. Practice enlightenment, in practice enlightenment, we see that the imperfections in the world and in ourselves are part of a greater wholeness, that the wholeness is actually beautiful. I, when I started sitting, just sitting, I saw a flaw in myself I didn't know I had. But when I saw that flaw, I was able to address it. And I released a lot of potential that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And sometimes there are ugly and cruel things in the world, such as war, famine, and injustice. And we are right to want to fix those things, to do something about them, to make the world a better place. But at the same time, we can see that the entire wholeness, the world, even including those things, is beautiful. The next part I'm going to discuss is, quote, if you think that Munin no thought is your real mind, and become attached to the conditions of no thought where neither good nor evil arises. It is the same as thinking that where no reflection exists is the mirror itself, and thus becoming attached to the backside of the mirror. If the mirror reflects nothing, it is the same as if it were a piece of stone or tile. The function of the light of the mirror is lost. This analogy admonishes you not to get caught up in dullness or muki, no good, no evil, no thought. As you know, neither the reflection nor the backside of the mirror is the essential function of the mirror, which, like that of the light, illuminates itself clearly. You must realize that the Buddha's wisdom, like a great and perfect mirror, is far beyond the dichotomy of thought and no thought. For example, when you sit zazen, if your mind does not arise and function, and if you do not see anything, hear anything, or feel any pain or itchiness, you can just stagnate in emptiness. On the contrary, if you see or hear something outside and think 
of it or feel just and become attached to pain or itchiness, you just stagnate in the distraction caused by the dichotomy of su subject and object. Both conditions are limited by delusory thoughts. Therefore, the third patriarch said, neither follow after objects nor dwell in emptiness. End of quote. It's a common lament by people taking up the practice that I can't stop my thoughts or I can't empty my mind. This passage makes it clear that stopping the thoughts and emptying the mind is not the point. The point is to allow the thoughts and emotions to arise and allow them to pass away, not getting attached to some or pushing others away, but allowing them to rise and fall on their own. A mirror must reflect. Not thinking or and not feeling are not is not reflecting. Allowing, allowing strong feelings to arise is not to be thrown around by them. When I read this section, I thought it was discussing spiritual bypassing. Jundo didn't uh, think the connection was clear, and he sent me an article, What is Spiritual Bypassing?, by Kendra Cherry on the site Very Well Mind, updated December 6, 2020. Spiritual bypassing is a term that was coined in the 1970s, and it means to misuse spirituality to avoid complex emotional issues. Some signs of spiritual by bypassing is not feeling anger or believing that problems will be solved through positive thinking or believing that tra all trauma is are good learning experiences um, and not seeing things as they are in order to remain in a spiritual bliss. Menzon is saying not to do these things. Menzon is saying to see thoughts and emotions as they arise. The relative and absolute are two different lenses. The relative, in the relative, we, we begin in the relative and we see in the relative good or evil, me or you, up or down, winning or losing. For example, I can get lost in my ambition to become a successful fiction writer. When we sit, we, we see the absolute as well. That there real, in a very real way, there is no good or evil, no up or down, no me or you, no winning or losing. The Heart Sutra says all is emptiness, including sense experiences and life and death. 
So in Chicken Taza, I can drop my ambitions and I can see that I'm fine as I am. Nothing needs to be added or taken away. However, we have another chant that says, realizing the absolute is not yet enlightenment. So when I get up from my cushion, there's house cleaning that needs to be done. And I want to be a contributing member of society. We are embodied beings and we respond to things. Practice enlightenment includes those responses. Without feeling, we can't be compassionate to other people. Escaping, escaping feelings such as the sting of rejection is not wise or compassionate. It's a spiritual bypass. Like the third patriarch said, neither follow after objects nor dwell in emptiness. And that's about all I have for that section. Um, does anybody have any questions or comments? Please feel free to uh, sit, recline, whatever way you prefer to do. Uh, if you want to, you can get yourself a beverage or what have you. We'll just have a little chat. And uh, if you prefer, you can sit in Zazen. Uh, first thing I'd like to say, I'd just like to thank all the priests, the Ensui, all the Technoinos, all the people behind scenes, and everybody participating for making this a great Rahatsu so far. So thank you very much. Um, I'm in rare form today. I pushed myself too hard yesterday, and so I didn't sleep last night. So uh, uh, you get me in, in perfect, just delirious, you know, Gen Con. Uh, which can be great because that, uh, then I have an excuse for why I, you know, uh, basically just destroyed all the pronunciation of all the Sanskrit and Japanese words. So, uh, with that said, uh, we're going to get into uh, more of Menzan's Jiyu Zanmani. He says, at this point, we must understand thoroughly that body, mind, and the world, time and space, are all one. Only if illusory mind is dropped off will body, mind, and the world not be separate from one another. Fundamentally, there is only one universal Dharma world in which all things permeate each other. Menzan is saying that Everything has been writing about has led up to this core concept. And not only should we, but we must understand it at this point. That understanding, this understanding of interconnectedness, there is no I or you. You are giving this talk and I am watching 
just as much as I am giving this talk and you are watching. Because we have this evolutionary imperative to categorize things, uh, it's a hard concept for us to grasp. It was the caveman that was able to categorize things with sharp claws and teeth that lived versus the one who tried to snuggle them. We must, through practice, overcome this evolutionary imperative. This is why even after we experience the way, the unmanifest, in the manifestation, no mind, we still practice. So when I say I am you and you are me, it can seem contradictory. Let that go. Sit or recline. When you think to yourself, am I really giving this talk and is he really watching? Just let that arise and let it go. Accept and let go that you, accept and let go of the you and the me. Accept and let go of the questions. When you do that, you will start to experience the no I and the all. Menzan continues. Therefore, when you admit the original light, which is beyond the dimensions of thought and illuminate illusory mind, then body, mind, and the world become the virakana tathagata. This is the meaning behind the saying, when the light quietly illuminates the whole universe, ordinary beings and all other living beings are just one family. The original light is that experience of interconnectedness, the Dhammakaya. It is when you experience not the wave, the eye, but the whole ocean, the all. The Buddha nature, the eternal that dwells in us all. Menzan uses the Virakana Tathagata to represent the whole. He also uses it uh, because it is primarily associated with the esoteric. And for those who don't practice, interconnectedness can seem very esoteric. It is through Zazen that we find the lamp that allows us to see the whole. It shines through the delusion, illuminating truth. It shows us all things. Continuing. The original face of body, mind, and the world is beyond any definition, derived from thoughts and discrimination, such as being destroyed, not being destroyed, following or transcending the principle of appearance and disappearance. The original face of body, mind, and the world is the Dhammakaya, the unmanifest that all Buddhas manifest and arise from and then return to, that indescribable truth that is all and none, only to be experienced when the mind is dropped. 
when this happens, you attain the unattainable and gain what you already had. You realize any striving was pointless and in vain because you were already at the finish line before the race even started. For this reason, when everything is clearly illuminated by the light of the Buddha's awareness beyond thoughts and discrimination, and when body, mind, and the world, mountains, rivers, and the great earth are not considered as existing separately, there is no distinction between inside and outside, subject and object. There is no separation whatsoever between body, mind, and the world. It is like air mixed with, with air or water mixed with water. Menzen is just is continuing to expand that all is interconnected. Uh, is always the interconnected nature of the manifestations of the unmanifest. There is an old saying which expresses the same meaning. If one truly realizes the mind, there is not one inch of extra land on the great earth. We can equally say that if one truly realizes the earth, there will not be an inch of thought in our mind. That is why Shakyamuni, on attain, in attaining the way, said, the earth, living beings, and non-living beings, and I have all attained the way at the same time. This, is, this also expresses the reality of body, mind, and the world being just one. If one truly realizes the mind, there's not one inch of extra land on this great earth. So the person who masters the mind doesn't discriminate and encompasses all because he realizes he is all. Shakyamuni shares with us, all things have a Buddha nature. All things share in his realization. You were the sunshine. You were the grass, the Bodhi tree and Gautama when he realized the way he, you, on the mat, the chair, or sickbed, when the realization hits you. You will soon know that this solitary practice has never been so. You have and will always sit with the masters in the eternal. So why would Menzen write about the indescribable interconnectedness of all things? What is he doing with the small passage? What he's doing with the small passage is trying to be a signpost on the road to practice. Just as you drive and see signs for streets, hotels, and restaurants, if you've never been there, you only have the vaguest idea of what to expect. You could see a signpost for a hotel, go there expecting a shack in the middle of nowhere and receive the pleasant surprise of a four-star palace. The only way to find out if that is the case is to get on the exit, head to that destination. That is Shikintaza. Through all these heavy-weighted words of manifest, unmanifest, dhammakaya, and interconnected, they are just signs on the highway of life until you decide to take the off-ramp. That is to say, practice Shikintaza and experience the destination. 
Nenzen was a reformer in an era where monks were f falling into different practices. He was there holding up a light. He was there saying, you don't need esoteric practices. You don't need Nambutsu. Dogen came back from China with all you need, and that is to simply sit. Before I had my stroke, uh, I was quite verbose, and words, they came easily. After the stroke, I realized words weren't easy to access anymore. I had to go to speech therapy to relearn to talk, and I still have problems. I have the vocabulary learned, it's in my brain, but it's out of reach. This is a good example of both dukkha and practice. For me, the words are there. I just need to find ways of getting them out, deeply hitting, hidden under layers of faulty neurons. For you, true nature of all resides in you. We all just manifest for the briefest moments cosmically to return to the unmanifest, which can be accessed through practice. It is not faulty neuron that hides it, but ego and delusion. So follow Mensen's signpost and go down the path of Dogen Shikintaza. You will encounter brambles, potholes, uneven surfaces. And when you finally make it to that four-star hotel, you may find it locked. You will sit and struggle with the door until one day you realize you are turning it the wrong direction and the door was open to you all along. I hope your path to Stokerson has not been a rough, a rough road. But if it has, remember that it is through great pressure that diamonds are made. If you're thinking that of all these ideas that seem lofty and beyond grasp, how do I incorporate them into my practice in life? Well, firstly, stop grasping. Don't think of them as lofty. Just sit. And when the internal ever-changing becomes apparent to you, you won't, you won't have to implement it in your life. It will ingrain itself in you and in all aspects of your life. If I tell you how this will affect your life, then it may become your focus. So for now, please just accept this humble talk about attachment Your practice at times may be a desert, at times it may be a wellspring, but it is always practice. I want to share one, uh, well, I'll share two final stories before. Uh, so I, in uh, 2012, I suffered three of the worst months in my life. I lost uh, my grandfather, December of 2012. I lost my mother in January of 2013. And in February, I lost my wife and my daughter driving back from my mother's funeral to a drunk driver. I died with them those days. 
and yet they live with me. We are interconnected. I don't need family photos. I don't keep them. Not because I don't want to remember or because it's with me, because they're always with me. We are always connected. So if you, you know, struggle with grasping that interconnected, it's there. And it just, once you open yourself to it, you never feel alone. You never feel lost. Uh, last part of this, this talk has nothing to do. It's just something that I think bears being shared. Uh, when you... Some of you may have seen it uh, during the ceremony. I don't know how good my camera was, but you may have seen the thing in my hand, uh, which is a ryudi or a kotsu in Japanese. Uh, it's called the, the ryudi is the wish fulfilling scepter. You receive it uh, during the transmission ceremony. And it looks like a wand. And it takes every ounce of my effort to not skip around the house with this and start spouting off Harry Potter spells, going Expelliarmus, Expelliarmus. That... has nothing to do whatsoever with this, you know, the talk. It's just, it's one of those things that, that even in that moment, even in that goofiness, you can find something. There is wisdom there, whether it's the, the joy of being childish for a brief minute. So uh, earlier, Menzon talked about, you know, he, he, was, he was focusing on us. Um, oh, here we go. My brain's not going to work anymore. <laughs> Samadhi. He was uh, focusing on, you know, uh, talking about Samadhi. Samadhi allows you to find those those brief things, find those brief moments of interconnectedness. See the little bits of wisdom that you can get, and even the smallest thing. So I hope you all uh, continue to have lovely practices, and I will try to answer any questions if you have any. I don't know how well I'll do. Thank you for joining us for the Treeleaf Zendo podcast. Treeleaf is an online practice place for people who cannot easily attend a Zen center due to health, location, work, childcare, or family needs. We provide netcast Zazen, 
retreats, discussion, jukai, the support of fellow practitioners, interaction with a teacher, and all other activities of a Zen Buddhist Sangha, all fully online, accessible anytime, anywhere, without charge. Come build the future of online Zen community and practice.